When he was reviled, Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, the Father, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Lord, thank you. As we stop tonight, it's interesting to me that on this snowy, icy night that um, it's a small group here this evening compared to normal. But Lord Jesus, I'm also reminded that it was a small group at the foot of the cross that were devoted to you as well. And so I do ask you for a special blessing for all of those who hear this tonight and to be able to articulate as we approach, Lord, the Passion Week and Easter, that God, we will understand fully what Christ has accomplished for us in his crucifixion and be able to share that with others and live out the implications of that for ourselves. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated tonight. Thank you. Well, spring is getting close. Even though we're having snow, there's a children's VBX meeting, Vacation Bible School meeting taking place tonight, and uh, we're excited about that and what they're doing. I want to take you to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 as well, because if I can skip ahead as we go through the book of 1 Peter, this verse just fits so well right here. For Christ also suffered once for sins once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is probably the most comprehensive statement in the Bible. It's both practical and it's theological of what Christ did for us at Calvary. And when you meditate upon this particular verse, verse 18 of chapter 3, it's important to to see everything that's being said there, that Christ suffered once. The sacrifice was achieved. It was finished. It was final. Christ, the righteous, suffered for the unrighteous. So it's a theological statement, but it's also a practical statement because it affects how we live our lives and the implications of that are much more far-reaching that you might think when you first look at this verse and you look at the few verses we read from 1 Peter chapter 2. You see, what this verse teaches us, and I want to use a word that I've told you before that, is a, that I love this word. I think in the modern translations we don't use it, but it's, it just sums up in one word. It's a word that we need to retain in our thinking, and that is that our sins were imputed, imputed, decisively to Christ on the cross. Our sins were imputed decisively to Christ on the cross. And what the word imputed means is it means it's been charged to. There's an, uh, it's been accounted for. That God laid our sins upon Christ and He did that in a very decisive way. He did that at a moment. He did that at a point in time. He did that in an instant where Christ became sin for us. And the implications of that are just as consequential 
for you and I, those of us who believe in Christ, who follow Christ, as Adam's sin was in the Garden of Eden. For what God did was He treated Jesus as unrighteous. He took, he took our unrighteousness and He put that upon Christ. He treated Jesus as though He was ungodly. Again, let's look at it. He, for our sake, He made Him to be sin. That doesn't mean He became sin. doesn't mean He became wicked or that He became unrighteous. For Jesus continued forgiving people right up to the very end. He remained the Son of God, pure. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. By imputing, by charging to, by accounting our sins upon Christ, what Jesus did then was He took all of the sins of the world, all of those that would believe in Him and trust in Him, and He put those upon the Lord instantly upon <coughs> the cross, which I think is important. And I'm trying to just filter through a lot of things so I don't keep you here much longer tonight. But I think why that is important is because so many times when I'm having spiritual conversations with people about giving their heart to Christ, I had one of those this week. I didn't necessarily get that far as giving their hearts to Christ, but what was it that Jesus did for us? And what Jesus did for us in becoming sin for us means that I don't have to clean myself up. There are some people who say, well, I, I want to be a Christian, but you know, I, I really need to clean myself up first. You can't clean yourself up. Sin is something you can't purge yourself of, clean yourself up from. Sometimes people will say to me, well, I want to give my heart to Jesus, but I'm afraid I'm not doing it for the right reasons. I don't know that anybody, including myself, ever gave their hearts to Jesus for the right reason. We just simply believe that He died for our sins, and that if it, confessing our sins to Christ, we would give our hearts to Jesus. I can tell you very clearly why at 16 years old I gave my heart to Jesus, and that was because I did not want to go to hell. Okay? I did not want to go to hell. And I remember after having made that decision and growing to love the Lord and growing in grace and learning how to pray, I can remember thinking because I, hear, I would hear other people's testimonies and stories and I thought, wow, I, my motive for giving my heart to Christ was so impure and so unrighteous. And I will never forget in my first theology class when I was preparing for the ministry and we got to the point where we talked about how people were saved, the salvation of man, suddenly it just blew it wide open for me. No one comes to God with a pure heart. We are given pure hearts after we give our hearts to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Because we come to Him with all of our sins and all of that gunk and that rot in our lives. And when we're made right with God, when we're made right with God, the Bible talks about this seed being planted within us. It's the, the Holy Spirit, a seed of love that begins to grow in our lives and we become more like Jesus. I become the righteousness of God in Christ, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm living righteously yet because I use the illustration of the guy I told you about that gave his heart to Jesus and I think I did this like three weeks ago. He gave his heart to Jesus. And, and uh, when it got around the, the mechanic shop, he's a diesel truck mechanic, and he'd given his heart to Jesus. 
Somebody came up and said, I, I understand that you're a Christian now. And he said, yes, I, I've given my heart to Christ. And the guy spit on the floor and just slapped him across the face. And before this new brother in Christ knew what he had done, he had knocked the guy out. He hit him so hard. And he was right. That was an unrighteous act to do, okay? But there's a seed of faith that was growing in him, and he went on to become a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? We don't become perfect overnight. Well, let me show you three imputations, and I'm using that word because I want you to remember it. It's better than charged to or accounted for, because if I charge something on my credit card, I'm going to pay for it when the bill comes. Does that make sense? If, if, you know, but there, there's that same thought, except that You'll see as I, as I go through this. Number one, Adam's sin was imputed to human beings. Adam's sin was imputed to human beings. Now, this is a lengthy passage that I've selected some verses out of, but you might want to go home and read all of the rest of these later from the book of Romans. And I think the Bible explains this the best. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and His gift of righteousness for all who will receive it. And if that's in your outline, you need to circle that. That's an important, I'll get to that later in the message. For all who will receive it, that's important, all who will receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, how did sin rule over all people? <coughs> because Adam sinned and that sin nature was passed on to human beings. Now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The very nature of sin, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, was imputed, and it is just not but just a few verses later that you see the violence occurring between their children. And I have never, ever, ever been so brokenhearted in our family life is when I would see my kids at odds with one another. And when they were little, you know, you would make them apologize to each other. How many of you know a lot of times those apologies were not from the hearts? But you wanted them to learn how to apologize. As they got older, we'd talk about what happened and what went wrong and tried to help them reconcile. And they knew they had to reconcile. But I can remember one time when one of them finally says, if it's not sincere, have I really apologized? And I says, no, you haven't really apologized. And I said, but you need to understand that that you're feeling with, that's the effect of sin in our world today because it makes us want to hold judgments against one another. You may be completely right. But you're going to have to learn to live in a world of broken people. I'll help you see why that's important here when it comes to your relationships in just a few more minutes. The second imputation was when man's sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe in a more... Um, inoffensive way, I could say human being sin, but 
you know, man's sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. Let's look at this. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. We'll say, how could you do that? How could God take what Jesus did and count it as our righteousness? Because God takes the sin of those who believe in Jesus and imputes that or, or credits that to Christ, and Christ's blood then makes atonement for our sins. Look at 1 Peter 2.24. He personally carried our sins in His body on the cross. Jesus personally carried my sins. He personally carried your sins to the cross. That is so important because later as we go through this book, you will see we don't want to sin against Christ and therefore cause Him more pain. As a believer, it's why we hate sin. It's why we still wrestle with the sin nature. <coughs> but we hate sin because when we do, it's like taking another hammer and a nail to Christ again. As a matter of fact, the Scripture is very clear, and we'll see this when we look a, a, even further ahead in our, as we go through First and Second Peter in the book of Jude. And we'll be looking at some verses from Hebrews that tells us we crucify Him again, putting Him to open shame by the way we live. So He personally carried our sins in His body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live what is, for what is right. And by His wounds you are healed. Now, here's the deal. I am dead to sin. You are dead to sin. But that doesn't mean that we don't wrestle against that nature. The difference is, I don't have to sin anymore. I don't have to sin anymore. The difference is that when I do sin, I go back to Christ and I say, Lord, forgive me, as Jesus taught us to pray each and every day. I had an interesting conversation just recently with one of my Jewish friends. He's a rabbi. And we were having lunch together and we were talking and we talked about this whole idea of sin. And the fact that Christ atoned for our sins is, is just such a, a foreign concept in their thinking. So I called another friend of mine who's from the tribe from the priestly tribe. And so I called him up and I said, now help me ex explain to me one more time what you as Jewish people hope for and long for, especially you being from the priestly tribe. He says, when the time comes and the temple is rebuilt, then I and all of those of us in this priestly line, we will be called back to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer sacrifices for our sins. And that's one of the great differences between followers of Jesus and people in so many other religions. We know that Christ once and for all atoned for our sins. And we know now the power of sin is broken over us. In the South, after the war between the states, there were people who had been slaves that were 
emancipated and liberated, but sometimes because they didn't know what to do with their freedom, they would come back and subjugate themselves to their masters and be enslaved once again. Sometimes because they had no resources, they would subjugate themselves to their masters and be enslaved once again. And so it's important to understand you and I have not only been emancipated, forgiven, set free, but we have resources in Christ that we have no idea about. Greater is he that is within you than he that's within the world. Amen? And I wish we could go on a little more with that tonight, but the third imputation I want you to see is that Jesus then, his righteousness, the Father imputed Jesus Christ's righteousness to his believers. Now, not only was Adam's sin that imputed to me, not only was my sin imputed to Christ, but now something has happened. The righteousness of God has been credited to my account. Now, I just took you down a dark path of the believer's struggle with sin from time to time. But now let me bring you back so that you know it's not just something flippant that somebody says that when Christ looks at us, He doesn't see us in our righteousness. He sees us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is one of the most liberating truths that I know of. So I I wrote a statement here for you. It's not really another point. But it's just something to help you understand. The moment I believe in Jesus, I am justified by faith legally, instantly. But that doesn't mean that I actually become righteous in all my behavior instantly. Does that make sense? The moment that I believe in Jesus, I am justified by faith instantly. The moment I put my faith in Christ... The moment somebody prays with us on a Sunday morning to put their faith in Jesus Christ, immediately they are justified. Their sins have been imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed to them. However, that doesn't mean that they become righteous in all their behaviors. That's the reason that the doctrine, if you've gone with me through Discovering Woodland, the doctrine of justification and sanctification go hand in hand together. Because I have been justified, but I am being sanctified by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit every single day of my life. Does does that make sense? And I'll never stop growing in Christ, and you'll never stop growing in Christ. And helping new believers begin to see that sometimes can be quite a challenge, especially if they come from a background where they were taught perfection or some other areas that we'll look at. People are counted in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. People are counted as righteousness, as righteous, not because of their work. Thanks, Mark. But because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. So how are we counted righteous? I just put this verse back up there if you don't mind, Paul. How are we counted as righteous? Because of our faith in Christ Jesus. Not because of our works. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have good works. But my good works do not make me righteous. It was faith in Jesus Christ that made me righteous. And how many of you know that faith is a gift? Now the gift of faith is given to all men. So what you do with that gift of faith. 
So this brings us in, in this portion of Scripture before, because when you get into 1 Peter 3, we're going to start talking about relationships, and it's important to understand this. Because if all of a sudden that I was legally justified, I'm legally righteous, but I'm not behaving very righteously, then it might help Becky to understand what's going on in my life. Especially if you're new Christians and you don't have the benefit of having studied the Word. This is a very important transitional point. You see, Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice for sins. There is no need for any more sacrifice. And if the temple is or isn't rebuilt, there are some people who believe it will be rebuilt. There are some people who believe it will never be rebuilt. I personally think that during the tribulation that there will be a, um, a strong move to, to rebuild the temple. And if you were here during the series on Revelation, I gave you scriptural references for that. Let me read to you one more time, chapter 3, verse 18. But I want to read it to you from a translation of the Bible Becky gave me for um, Christmas. Um, this translation, by the way, I, I probably would not call it a translation. I'd probably call it more like the Amplified Edition. Um, it, the, the, the translators bring out the meanings of words, and that's what's happening <coughs> right here. Christ suffered and died for sins once and for all. Is that in your outline? Is that in your outline? That, all right, circle that phrase, once and for all. Christ suffered and died for sins once and for all. The innocent... For the guilty. In other words, the righteous for the unrighteous. The innocent for the guilty. And why did he do that? To bring you near to God. Underline that. Bring you near to God by his body being put to death and by being raised to life by the Spirit. Why did Christ do this? So that you could know God as your heavenly Father. God is not some distant almighty deity that doesn't want to be known. God created us out of a heart of love. God desires fellowship with us out of a heart of love. And as we start to wrap this up, I think you'll begin to see the implications of that. And this is probably where Protestants and Catholics, and I'm not going to beat up on the Catholics, but this is an important point of understanding. And again, in Discovering Woodland, I take quite a few minutes to teach about this. You see, Protestants and Catholics, we all agree upon the effective cause of salvation. We all agree on the effective call of salvation. We believe that God is holy. We believe that man is sinful. We believe that without Christ dying for our sins, that no one could be saved. And we believe that it's Christ's death upon the cross that saves us. So we, we both believe, Protestants and Catholics, in the effective cause of our salvation. He died for the unrighteous. The innocent died for the guilty. Where we differ at is in what you would call the instrumental cause of salvation. And if I could get you to think of a sculptor and a statue... The sculptor uses a chisel to chisel out of the marble the statue. And I never really was that interested in sculpture until 
Becky and I went to the Da Vinci Museum in, in Florence, and I was just taken aback looking at all the work, and then we saw some of his works that were never completed, and saw some of his drawings, and I, and I just was fascinated. That's where I saw, uh, for the first time, David, uh, the, the famous statue of David. What the, the Catholics would say is the chisel is the sacraments, that you are saved by receiving the sacraments. That's why they do the Mass every week. In other words, because we sin, then Christ each week has to be sacrificed again, and that's what they believe is happening in the Mass. And so the, 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 the instrumental cause of your salvation is receiving the Mass. And that's why so many Catholics will go to receive the Mass so faithfully because they have been taught that without receiving, and they believe it becomes the literal body and, bloody, body and blood of the Lord, when you hear that little bell ring, that it becomes, <clears throat> that the miracle happens and that it's literally the body and the blood. And so, because they sin and their salvation leaks, so to speak, they have to come back and receive weekly communion, and if they don't, they'll end up being lost. Whereas, what the Bible teaches and what Protestants believe is that the instrumental, the chisel cause of our salvation is when we exercise our faith in God and we believe in Him and we are saved and we are adopted into the family and our sins are forgiven. And so you might ask yourself then just a few questions because the work of salvation is finished. You don't need, and, I, and again, I'm not beating up. I'm just trying to help you see the difference because I get asked this question a lot, especially here in the metro area. Christ does not need to be sacrificed again on the altar each week for our sins. He died, what does the Bible say? Once and for all. Say that with me. Once and for all. He died once and for all. So he doesn't need... We don't need the sacrament of the Mass. Secondly, when you are adopted into the family, you can't be unborn. You've been reborn. You've been rededicated. I was talking to my Jewish rabbi friend this week, and we were talking about the doctrine of the new birth. And I am just so grateful for the friendship being extended and being able to have these conversations. And I hope it's sharpening me, not only as a pastor, but as a theologian. So, three things I want you to get out of this. Number one, Christ's work accomplished our salvation once and for all, once you put your faith in Him. doesn't mean that we don't ever sin and that we don't need to confess our sins, but Christ is not sacrificed all over again. The second thing, salvation is received by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith. And then the third thing, because I brought up Mass, I want to just say this. When we take communion, Jesus says, Remember me. Remember me. This body represents my, my this bread represents my body. This, this, this cup represents my blood. In other words, it's a renewal of intimacy with Jesus. When we're receiving communion, it's probably one of the most sacred times in my life every month, and it's a renewal of our intimacy. It's not a renewal of my faith, it's not a renewal of my devotion. 
It's not a renewal of my salvation. I'm not being saved by taking it. I had to explain this recently to a a Catholic um, attender. Was what you know people who attend our church regularly. We call them attenders that aren't members yet. A Catholic attender of someone who come from a cat, and they're very faithful to our church and. And they say, Pastor, I never miss the communion, and, and I'm so glad I only have to take it one time a month. And I said, oh, tell me what you mean. You never miss, and you only have to take it once. So we went through, and I said, no, 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 that is not what we believe. Christ died once and for all for sin. And if you miss communion, your salvation is not leaking. Now, you need to be here to take communion, but your salvation is not leaking. Does that make sense? It's a renewal of intimacy. And to me, it's one of the most precious times of the church. Again, when Jesus had tasted the sour wine they gave him on the cross, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What Jesus was doing there is astonishing. And I, I want to take you through what he did here because the point of all that I just took you through about what Protestants and Roman Catholics believe about the effective cause or the instrumental cause and the efficient cause was not to point out the difference, but so that you could appreciate the implications of what all of this means. And the implications of this first is my conscience is put at ease in Christ. You see, for many people, their conscience troubles them constantly and you hear people talk about a guilty conscience some people try to numb their conscience with alcohol or or with with uh, false religions some people try to minimize the the conscience as somebody said to me at starbucks who really knows what's right or wrong who really knows what's true well there's an authoritative word of god given to us that helps us to discern right from wrong some people blame others about, you know, why their conscience is troubling them. If, they, if this person had have done that, I would have never done that. Your sin is never an excuse for me to sin. My sin is never an excuse for you to sin. You see what I'm saying? And so I said, and I said to, to Russell, when he hit the truck driver or the truck mechanic, I said, Russell, that was wrong. I understand. I understand. But that was wrong. That was sinful. And the better part of your testimony will be to go to him and apologize and say, forgive me. And to go to the Lord and say, forgive me. And Russell did and became, just began to grow in his faith more and more in Jesus. Still legally justified, but being sanctified every single day. But if I'd have numbed his conscience and go, there, there, Russell, that's okay. If I say to you in your sin, There, there, and not that you've sinned anything today, but there, there, Mark, that's okay. We all sin and walk away from you. I haven't helped you. But how you deal with your conscience is if you've sinned against someone, you go, the Bible says, and you you ask them to forgive you. And the second thing you do is you ask God to forgive you and, and you forsake that sin and you keep moving on. That's that process of sanctification. Then there's something else. Well, let me read you this quote because it comes from Samuel Gandy. It's part of an old hymn. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. I don't know about you, but that 
just really brings comfort to my soul. The devil will accuse me a lot of times. He's trying to attack my conscience. But you know what? I know more of them than he does. But God looks at you and me and he doesn't see us in our sins. He sees us through the blood of Jesus. We are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? I mean, that is such good news. I won't stand in heaven because of my works. Second thing is disappointment. This helps me to handle disappointment because I get... I become disappointed in myself when I don't live up to my own self-expectations. When I li- don't live up to my own self-expectations, I'm trying to be in my life what Christ can only be for me. And that doesn't mean I excuse weakness. It doesn't mean that I don't try to build healthy habits. But you see, there's all kinds of disappointments that we're going to face in our life. But Christ has become our all in all. Jesus is more than enough. And where I am weak, He is strong. And by the way, it seems that the Apostle Paul says very clearly that God's strength is made more manifest in us in our weaknesses and not in our strengths. I've laughed over and over through the years. People seem to get blessed more by my weaknesses than they do by my strengths. You know? I've laughed through the years. I can find more people willing to weep with me over my sorrows than I am to rejoice with me over my victories. There's something about the nature of people that we just, we don't learn how to celebrate one another and rejoice in one another's victories. One of the best books I ever read on that subject, it's not even a religious book, but it's called The uh, Love Cat Factor by Tim Sanders. What a powerful book of learning to celebrate other people. And I've recommended that to you before. The second thing is relational. So many times when people get saved, they think suddenly they're going to have a perfect marriage. I have a wonderful marriage, but it is not a perfect marriage because I'm in it. And if you'll do me a favor, if you'll tell Becky that I took all the responsibility tonight because I'm in it. And you don't have a perfect marriage because you're in it. And so if we, we think that a Christian is supposed to have a perfect marriage, <clears throat> if we think that a Christian is supposed to have a perfect marriage, then we're going to be disappointed in ourselves. We're going to have relational issues. If you think I'm supposed to be the perfect pastor, then you're going to find out that I'm going to disappoint you. We're going to have relational issues. I remember when Dr. James um, Dobbins was teaching at a pastor's retreat and conference I was attending. And he said to us, he says, let me tell you what your congregation expects of you. They expect you to be as righteous as Jesus. They expect you to preach like the prophet of Elijah. They expect you to be willing to, be, uh, to, to die for the faith like the apostle Paul. And he went on and on and on. They expect you to work 80 hours a week and they expect you to take two days a week off and have the perfect marriage. And everybody's laughing. And then he shows a picture and he says of a church board after they went over all the qualifications for their pastors, says not even Jesus could pastor this church. Now, I've never had those kind of things put upon me here at Woodland. I'm not saying that because of any problem. I'm just saying that in my mind, I can have all kinds of expectations for you as a congregation. And forget that you're on the path of becoming more and more like Jesus. You can have all kinds of expectations of me. And then if we take that into the marketplace, 
And if we don't understand the work of grace that's taking place in our life, we'll never really learn how to get along with people. Let me tell you, the art and the secret of getting along with people is giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ and let the Holy Spirit sanctify you and follow his relational teachings. Matter of fact, I talked about that when we went through the book of Ephesians uh, last summer, not this past summer, but last summer. And then I'm resting from my works. I'm not saved by my works, and we're out of time here, so let's wrap this up. I'm resting from my works, and my confidence is in Christ. My confidence is in Christ. You see, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever had, when you've done something, said something, thought something, you've ever had the enemy whisper to you, or else you've condemned yourself for this thought, and you call yourself a Christian? Yeah, I ask you not to raise your hands, but there's heads nodding all over the building. And you call yourself a Christian. Or somebody has said to you when you've, made, you've gotten angry or you've said something and you call yourself a Christian. Friends, the most astonishing thing to me in the world, the most astonishing thing in the world to me is that I am a Christian. That's the most astonishing thing in the whole, that I am forgiven, that I am saved. That's the most mind-blowing, mind-boggling, discombobulating but comforting fact that I know of, that I'm saved. And so often at night when I close my eyes and when we're sleeping is when we're closest to death in this life that we'd experience. And I think back over the day and pray, Lord, I hope that everything I've said, done, thought, taught, has been pleasing to you. Sometimes I've had to slide out of the bed and get on my knees and say, Lord, I am sorry, but I took a hammer and a nail to your hands again today with my attitude or something I said or did. The most astonishing thing in the world is I'm a Christian. The second most astonishing thing, and you may reverse my statements, but if you'll listen carefully, The second most astonishing thing to me is is Jesus is the only one who truly chose to die the righteous for the unrighteous, the innocent for the guilty. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, what about our soldiers that have chosen to die? What about our police officers who have chosen to die, our firefighters? Maybe you know somebody that chose to die for their child. Maybe you know somebody that committed suicide. I preached too many of those funerals. You see, they didn't choose to die because we're all going to die. At some point, at some time, we're all going to die unless the rapture takes place first. They chose the method of their death And they chose the timing of their death. If it was a firefighter dying to save a baby in a house fire, if it was a soldier dying protecting someone on a battlefield, or if it was someone who committed suicide, they're going to die anyway. I'm going to die one day unless Jesus comes again first. 
They chose the method and they chose the timing. But Jesus was life. In Him was life. Jesus was God. Jesus could not die unless He voluntarily gave His life. Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. He was the only one that could willingly lay down his life because one day we'll all die. Remember, Adam's sin had effects upon the whole human race. But it's why Jesus, who was sinless, when sin was imputed upon him, even then sin could not kill him. And hanging on that cross, his final saying was, it is finished. It's complete. It's all done. And then the old King James Version puts it like this. If you know it, say it with me. He gave up the ghost. He gave up the spirit. He willingly gave himself so that you and I could be born again. That was a supreme act of authority because death had no hold on Jesus. He became sin for us and died. You might ask yourself, why? Because he loves you. Because he loves me. I mean, what kept him on that cross? The Bible is clear. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have come off that cross. He could have cursed, but he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know. Nothing was impossible to him. And what kept him on the cross was not the nails. What kept him on the cross was his love for us tonight. And I think that's why the Apostle Paul said these wonderful words. I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oh, Paul rejoiced in the resurrection. Paul rejoiced in the gifts of the Spirit. Paul rejoiced in the church. But when it came to what he was going to boast about, he was going to boast about the love that God had for us that kept Jesus on the cross until our salvation was accomplished. And when we take communion week after next, I hope you'll remember this message because you'll have something that nobody else is going to have that morning. You're going to know about the renewal of the intimacy that was accomplished for you. Would you stand with me tonight and let me pray for you. I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you That you came and you atoned for our sins. You did it all to bring us to God. You did it all so that we could know you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You did it so that we could be adopted into the family of God. I thank you that because of your death, we have eternal life. We have something to live for now. And I thank you that our eternal life and our salvation is not secured by any works that we do, but they are secured by the work that you 
accomplished. You finished at Calvary. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen, amen, and amen. Thank you so much for coming out on this cold night. I love you, and I'll look forward to seeing you Sunday morning.